0: O Niranjanam Nityam Anantarupam Bhaktanukam Nukam Padritavigraham Vai Isha Vataram Parameshamidyam Tangra Makrishnam Jananim Saradam Devim Ramakrishnam Jagat Gurum Padapadme Tayo Sritva Pranamami Muhurumu Namasri Yetirajaya Vivekananda Surai Satchidisukhas (laughs) Svāmīne Tāpahārīne Vasudeva Sutaṅdevam Devaki Paramanandam Krishnam Vande jagat Svāmīne So before entering into the text of the Srimad Bhagavad Gita, which we will start from the second chapter, as the first chapter is mainly the preparation for the background of the entire Bhagavad Gita, the Vishada Yoga, that we will discuss uh, just as a narration, but sloka by sloka, we will start discussing from the second chapter. So before that, Today we will just have an introduction of the Srimad Bhagavad Gita. That what's the basic philosophy behind the Bhagavad Gita. So once we are not, once we are not clear about the, the philosophical approach of Srimad Bhagavad Gita, <clears throat> it will be very difficult to understand the slokas by itself. We cannot, uh, as such, find a flow of ideas, the slokas will become something discrete. there won't be a flow of ideas unless we have an overall idea of the philosophy of Srimad Bhagavad Gita. So today we will try to discuss as if the overall approach to progress in our spiritual life, the overall approach which has been taken by the Bhagavad Gita that we will try to discuss and understand. So in as per the Vedic civilization is concerned, as per the Hindu culture is concerned, these Upanishads, the Brahma Sutras and the Bhagavad Gita, these three are known as the Prasthanatraya. So what it actually means, they are the three pillars of Hinduism which can lead us to spiritual emancipation the mukti, the idea of liberation. So this, if we want to know the path which can lead to spiritual emancipation, spiritual liberation. So these are the three pillars, three is three books. The prasthana means retreat, that we want to retreat from this phenomenal world so that we become established in our spiritual identity. So for that, these three other scriptures, Prasthana, Upanishads, the Brahma Sutras, and the Bhagavad Gita. But Bhagavad Gita, among all the scripture, is unique. It has certain traits which we find nowhere else, in no other scriptures. The uniqueness of Bhagavad Gita is that among all the great religious books of the world, we will find it it does not stand apart as a work by itself. So it is not something which is the product of the revelation of a spiritually illumined soul going deep into the meditation in seclusion, coming back from his meditation with the realization and preaching the world. That's what we find in almost all the religions. The prophet or the messenger of god or the rishis of the vedas and the upanishads going to the seclusion in deep meditation coming back and to preach the word their revelations which they had in their deep meditation they were as if cut off from the life and for some time and then they are coming back to reveal the revelations to the world, so that the world also is benefited by them. But we all know that Bhagavad Gita is not such a scripture. We find that it is an episode where the message has been proclaimed by the Lord, by Bhagavan Krishna, to his disciple Arjuna. When he is when he's, uh, proclaiming that, on the eve of a war, an epic war, while standing between the confronting armies and that too in the moment of terrible crisis. We find Arjuna is in the moment of terrible crisis being baffled, he's totally baffled, he's perplexed by the thought whether he must recoil from the war, retreat from the war altogether or carry it to its uncompromising completion he is in a big dilemma. And we find that's the context of Bhagavad Gita. It's not from the deep seclusion, it's with the challenges of the life when we are in a deep crisis from where the Bhagavad Gita's teaching is humanity. So that's the teaching of the Bhagavad Gita. We should not regard it as an exclusive abstract the spiritual philosophy. Which is amputated from our secular life. It is rather a teaching on particular spirituality. It's a practical spirituality which helps us to confront the challenges of life. So, this is the specialty of the Gita. It's not that spirituality need not be used as a cellar, a bunker. When in the battlefield, when the army, when the opposing army is just firing on you and you are not, you find that your armor, your this a, weapons are not sufficient to tackle with it. What we do, we hide in the bunker. Many think the spiritual life is just like that hiding in the bunker. When we cannot face the challenges of the life, the tremendous that uh, the, the way the all the weapons, everything is being directed towards us. We cannot face it as if hiding in the bunker is something which speaks of spiritual life. will find Bhagavad Gita is, from the very beginning, is challenging that idea. According to Bhagavad Gita, the spirituality is to face the challenges of life and transcend them. It's not running away. So yes, the crisis of life is bound to, as if, bring us in such a situation where we find that we are afraid. The fear factor becomes something prominent. That is quite okay. That is obvious. But fear, how we take that fear, that's very important. So fear is something obvious while facing the challenges of life. But fear shouldn't mean that we should forget everything and run. F-E-A-R, forget everything and run. We shouldn't take that way. We have to encounter the challenges of life by face everything and rise. So that's uh, something I heard from one of the lectures of Ratan Tata. Very nicely that he was, and it is so appropriate in the context of Bhagavad Gita. F-E-A-R, it can be interpreted in two ways, forget everything and run, that's what we do generally. But it can be taken in a positive way, that fear, we don't deny. It's a fact of life, we do have fear. Everyone has to have fear. Those who are now uh, facing the, all the, what you say, those who have went to attend this, uh, participate in the Olympics, Each and every participant do have that fear. But how do they compete? By facing everything and rise. That's how we have to take the challenge of life. So now the question comes that how to outgrow the morbid fear that impulse us to run away. How to outgrow that? Yes, if we can face everything and rise, that's really something which is admirable. But sometimes we feel that there is a morbid fear that is impelling us to run away. So how to outgrow that? <clears throat> in the words of Einstein, very nicely in one of uh, in places we find and this Einstein's famous quotation, “No problem can be solved from the same consciousness that created it. A wonderful statement: No problem can be solved from the same consciousness, that created it. And that's what we find in the Bhagavad Gita. That Arjuna when he's in crisis, he is the fortunate one to have God himself as the divine personality, as a teacher, to there to raise his, to uplift his level of consciousness to another dimension of spiritual existence from where he finds that all the so-called the dilemmas Resolved. So, this Arjuna represents the entire humanity. To raise the level of consciousness to effectively deal with that crisis, we do need a divine personality as our teacher. And here we find that Arjuna was blessed to have the teacher who is God Himself. And this has proven to be a blessing for the entire humankind. For all of us, it has proven to be a great blessing. Because Gita is God's teaching to humankind through Arjuna. God comes down and incarnates as a human being so that the human beings can rise and can just live the life being aware of the divine level of existence. They can rise to live in God. And that's the thing which has been indicated in the Bhagavad Gita again and again. The phrases like, the words like Mat Chitta Man Mana you will find again and again has been repeated in the Bhagavad Gita. Mat Chitta that your, keep your mind in me. Resolve your thoughts in me. Man Mana thinking of me. Offering all the results of your action. Continue with the responsibilities of life. Don't run away from there in the words of swami vivekananda when we were reading karma yoga the words which we were repeating again and again the swami is that small phrase which speaks of the ideal of bhagavad gita is that neither uh, that's nor seek nor avoid neither seek nor avoid that we need not go for this higher ambitions throughout our life but at the same time, we should not forsake our responsibility. In whatever situation we are placed, know my responsibility. I should know my responsibility. And I should take care of my responsibility with perfectly, but with detachment. That's the idea. And that detachment comes from your awareness of the divine. You know that everything is happening as per the divine plan. I am just a mere instrument. It's nimitta. Just a mere instrument in the hand of the divine. As will be spoken of in the Bhagavad Gita. Nimitta matra bhava Sabhya In the 11th chapter it will come. That just become an instrument. It is he who is doing all the actions which is going on in the world. Become just an instrument in the hand of the divine. That will be indicated in the Bhagavad Gita, and that is being indicated in the Bhagavad Gita as Uttamam Rahasyam, the highest secret. If you know this secret, immediately all the the crisis, all the dilemma of life, you will find an answer to it. A new portal will open up and we will see the life in a total different perspective. Which can give us ultimate fulfillment, as per our human existence is concerned. So it is in the Bhagavad Gita we will find that from the very beginning the idea which we will try to drop in our mind is that it is through our ignorance and egoism that we think ourselves to be the doers, the karta, and the enjoyers, the bhukta of all our actions. As if we are the one who is doing and we are the one who is enjoying. That's what the general idea is. Now the question is how can we renounce this action which we are doing with the sense of this karta and bhokta? So Bhagavad Gita is an answer to this question where Bhagavan Krishna, as the master of all actions and sacrifice, It's a wonderful idea, we will find the idea of Yajna, that He is the one who is the Lord of the Yajna, He is the Adhi Yajna, the Lord of the Yajna. He being the Lord, being the master of all the actions, of all sacrifices, will again and again, He will emphatically emphasize that it is not renouncing our actions neither before realization nor after realization. He will give the examples of King Janaka and many other illuminaries who have shown the way that how even after realization, you are supposed to continue with your actions. It's not in any way renouncing of actions, but spiritualizing of our actions that enables us to rise above actions. So we can rise above actions, but we cannot renounce action. So you have to, not by renouncing actions, but by spiritualizing the actions, that can help us to rise above, to transcend the all the evil effects that comes out of actions, the suffering that comes out of action. So this, the idea of this uttamam rahasyam, which will be spoken of in the Bhagavad Gita to understand that we will have to understand the unique message of bhagavad gita its unique message of the harmony and synthesis how it is harmonizing the various philosophical concepts that was already prevalent at the time of bhagavan Sri krishna advent when he when he was here as the divine incarnation in this world the all the various philosophical concepts that were there, we find that they were as if in a melting pot. That everyone has this own paradigm of seeing the reality. And there was a, there was a time that was a prime time when there was a need for harmonizing them. So as to get a philosophy which can really show us the way out from all the confusion which was created by so many philosophies. The Sankhya philosophy, the Yoga philosophy, the Vedanta, the Purva Mimamsa, Nyaya, Vaisheshika. So all these six philosophies, we find they were all as if clashing with each other. They were not uh, coming to any harmony and synthesis. The role of Krishna as an avatar, as a divine incarnation, the God himself has incarnated, to show us the way, to show us the way out of this confusion. So in the Bhagavad Gita, when we start studying, we will find the first six chapters, the discourse of Bhagavan is predominantly, predominantly based on Sankhya philosophy, the Sankhya yoga. The Sankhya philosophy, what's the main tenets of that philosophy? That the ultimate reality consists of two ultimate categories the Purusha and the Prakriti. Now, Purusha is of the nature of pure consciousness, which is unchanging and is beyond the psychophysical existence. It is beyond the body, beyond the mind. It is a pure conscious principle that is the Purusha. But it's not that there is only one Purusha. There are many Purushas. Each of us are those individual Purushas as per the Sankhya philosophy. There are innumerable such discrete unit of pure consciousness, innumerable, which are unchanging, but they're beyond the nature, beyond the psychophysical existence. Say so they, these Purushas don't do any work, but they're the witness of all the changes and the activities that are going on in Prakriti. The moment the Purusha comes in association with the Prakriti, like the witness, it is just witnessing. The activities that's going on in the prakriti. Prakriti by itself is jara. Prakriti is only one. Uh, it is jara. It is unconscious. To so understand this idea, you can understand. Just let us take an example. Take the soil, the breeding ground, the fertilized breeding, the the fertile breeding ground as the prakriti, and all the innumerable seeds as the Purushas. The so Purushas by itself are something which itself cannot sprout. But when it comes in association with the soil, what happens? It's the soil actually, which is finding expression as the tree. It's not the seed which is growing into the tree. All the minerals, nutrients, which you get in the fruit in the tree from where it is coming is from the soil. The small seed doesn't have all those things but it is the seed which opens up the nature to find expression in particular way, so that which enables us to get various types of fruits, vegetables from the various seeds. So these seeds are coming in association with that one prakriti, that one breeding ground, purushas may be many, innumerable seeds. And that's finding expression as this phenomenal existence. This prakriti, which is unconscious, but it consists of three gunas, which is constantly mutating, constantly sattva rajatama. Uh, Immediately, uh, we are not going to the discussion, even to understand sattva rajatama. These three are, to us, is technical word. Sometimes we think it means that sattva means that calmness, rajas means activity, tamas means inertness. But it's These three meanings comes much later. The initial, the original meaning of Sattva Rajatama, we will take up later when the slokas come, is actually stimuli, response, and the stimuli to find response has to activate the, the mind with ideas which is already filled in, which is lying inert. All the ideas in your mind, your mind is not a tabular, it's not vacant. All the ideas are there. But we need the stimuli to activate those ideas which finds expression as action. And that is our entire world. Constantly that the way we are interacting with the world, the moment we see the world, what is happening? The stimuli is activating the ideas which are already latent in my mind. When I see the red flower, the redness is not outside there. A particular stimuli comes and activates the mind and the mind immediately throws the red color. So red color was in the mind. It was as something in dark. It was in tamas. The sattva comes and mutates it. It becomes expression as a red flower. And then I get the tendency to go and pluck it and offer it to the divine. It is finding expression as an activity. Can you think anything apart from this as, as far our existence is concerned? Constantly, the stimuli is uh, making the world appear as it is. It's not there as it is. Something is there, but what is there, we don't know. In Bhagavad Gita, we will find that the world has not been denied as unreal. It is real, but we can never know its real nature. It always finds expression through the gunas. There is something which, by interacting with the mind, appears as this world. And then we interact with that. And that's what speaks of the Sattva Rajatama. These three gunas are actually all hidden inside that jara, mind, just like a computer chip. Till the current passes through it, it is inert. The moment the current passes through it, immediately the world of virtual reality is projected out of it. So similarly, this Prakriti is something that consists of three gunas. And when it comes in association with the Purusha, then it finds expression as this world, as this universe. It is because of the ignorance that Purusha, when it comes in association with, with the prakriti, that it starts thinking itself, that as it's the all the mutations of the prakriti, it thinks that it is his mutation. And that's the cause of suffering. And liberation enters the detachment of Purusha from Prakriti. So these are the basic ideas of Sankhya philosophy. When reading the first six chapters, we may feel that Bhagavad Gita is actually ascribing to Sankhya philosophy, but it can never be. If that was the fact, then as per the Sankhya philosophy, what's the ultimate goal? That the Purusha when comes in association with the Prakriti, all the activity ensues, When it knows that it is in, there is no need for its association with the prakriti. It is whole by itself. It is perfect by itself. It's disassociates, and all the activity stops. So through meditation to know my real nature, that I am the conscious principle, is the goal of Sankhya and the yoga philosophy. And once you know it, there cannot be any activity. The activity stops. If Sankhya philosophy was the thing to which Bhagavad Gita ascribes to, then the very first, in the, in the very second chapter, it starts that where Arjuna is being instructed by Krishna. When Krishna is in the, di- uh, when Arjuna is in the dilemma, that, uh, that he should retreat, that seeing his own relatives, seeing his own friends and relatives, in the opposing army, the opposite side with whom he has to fight. That renunciation comes which should have been been appreciated by Bhagavan Krishna. That this this is the renunciation is something which speaks of spiritual uh, evolution. Krishna should have actually encouraged Arjuna if Sankhya philosophy was the thing which was Uh, the philosophy of Bhagavad Gita. But it's not. Then that's why we find when Arjuna is thinking of retreating, we find the Krishna is exhorting that stand up and fight. So that would have been pointless if Sankhya philosophy is the thing which Gita wants to preach. Then the question comes, if Sankhya philosophy is not the thing or even Vedanta, Advaita Vedanta is not the idea behind Bhagavad Gita. There also we find the same idea that once you realize that you are that that one non-dual self the question of activity doesn't come. The world is something which is a projection. Everything is mithya. Why to get involved in it? It's better to retreat and go in seclusion, in deep contemplation. That would have been appreciated. But God is saying that stand up and fight. So Bhagavad Gita is in no way following the Sankhya philosophy. Then the question comes, then if it is not following the Sankhya philosophy, then why in the first six chapters, such a means almost one third of Bhagavad Gita, it has 18 chapters, the first six chapters is dealing with the Sankhya philosophy. It's All the discussions you will find is something which adheres to the Sankhya philosophy. Why? Well, it has a role to play. Though it is not the ultimate goal to be inactive by realizing the conscious principle which is our real nature. It is not the goal. But still, this idea that you are the self, you are not this body-mind complex. This helps us to get rid of selfishness and egoism. The Prakriti is working. The moment the Purusha comes in association with the Prakriti, Prakriti is working by itself. So I am not the karta. I am not the Bhokta. There is some higher divine plan by which this association of the Purusha and Prakriti has happened. And that has entailed my individuality. I am within that plan. Let it go on. But let me know that I am not it. I am separate from it. I am the conscious principle which is in association with the body. The moment it comes in association with the body and mind, immediately I find myself in a particular situation in life with the responsibilities. Let it go on. So it is to get rid of that sense of selfishness which comes from the idea of the reality of my individuality, the psychophysical existence. All the selfishness originates from that. Egoism, selfishness originates from that. So to uh, enable the Chitta Shuddhi, to purify the mind, this idea that you are the self, you are not the Prakriti, this idea is highly helpful. So it doesn't entail inactivity. Even in action, I can purify my actions by developing detachment through Chitta Shuddhi and continue with my action from a different perspective. So for that, we find that Bhagavad Gita is following Sankhya philosophy in the first six chapter, but that's not the goal of Bhagavad Gita. We will find very interesting that this idea that this dilemma which comes, that when I get spiritual perfection, no work. Then the world won't continue. The actions, the, if it's the divine plan which has entailed all the things which we are seeing in the world, this phenomenal existence. So as if it will be something contrary to it. So Bhagavad Gita has overcome this drawback by synthesizing the Sankhya and the Vedanta through four approaches. We will try to just understand these four approaches at the very beginning of our discussion so that it becomes easy for us to understand the entire Bhagavad Gita in its true perspective. What are the four approaches, four paradigms which Bhagavad Bhagavad Gita is resorting to to explain the philosophy in action, which it has prescribed to Arjuna and in turn to the entire humankind. The first is very interesting. In the third and fourth chapter, we find the concept of Yajna and Yajna Chakra, through which uh, Bhagavan is divinizing the entire creation. There's nothing is apart from God. Everything is this divinity projected as this universe. And that also has been projected in the form of yagya. The yagya, as we will understand, it means interdependence. And Yajna Chakra means the cycle of interdependence. In this world, we cannot be selfish. We cannot stand apart. It's a wonderful law of interdependence is going on at each and every moment. Just to give a common example, that when in India I was attending one of the seminars meant for the school children, organized. Uh, uh, it was uh, the speaker was one of the Nobel laureates. Uh, it was George Smoot. He got Nobel Prize in Physics in the uh, in, in some nineteen nineties. I am don't know the exact year, and he came to India. He was at he in. Uh, uh, when he came, many schools were invited to, with the students to attend that his, uh, the seminar. And George Smoot, as he knew that all the students were the school level students to come down to their level, he suddenly asked one question that, do you believe in aliens? So the small children, of course, many raised their hand. They told, yes, it may be true. And then the next question, have you seen an alien? So now all were just quiet, no answer. None have seen the alien, so all were quiet. The next question, do you want to see an alien? Again, all raised their hands, of course. And now Professor George Smoot told, go and stand in front of the mirror if you want to see an alien. That was his answer. The answer, why? that the, our body, if you just take our, forget about your spiritual aspect, the physical aspect, our body, the cells with which the innumerable cells, trillions of cells constitutes our body. Take each cell with what it is made up of. At last you will find the elements, the so many <clears throat> these, uh, minerals, the elements which are in our cell, in our body passing through this our blood, everywhere it is. Not a single of those minerals have evolved even in earth, but to to forget that uh, with our birth, we have never uh, produced them. It was never created on earth. It is from the stardust from some star it came. It is everywhere in the universe. So you are all the stardust. So the theory of interdependence is we uh, will find that uh, is reflected here so go and stand in front of the mirror you can see the entire universe there when you see yourself in the mirror you are not something secluded from the universe and that's the real idea of Yajna. we will come to the discussion and this interdependence goes on in cycle and this entire thing has been has evolved from the divine it's not something separate and that way we will find Bhagavad Gita will be synthesizing Sankhya and Vedanta, that Purusha and Prakriti are not separate. From the Purusha, the Prakriti came and that also when it evolved, it evolved with certain universal laws, which is following certain cycle and that cycle speaks of interdependence. So we will come to a bit more vivid discretion by uh, states, by picking up some of the Bhagavad Gita slokas to understand highlight the concept of Yajna by which Sankhya and Vedanta has been synthesized to come overcome the drawbacks of the Sankhya philosophy by itself or the Vedanta by itself. So that's the first approach. In the third and the fourth chapter, the concept of Yajna will come. If you want to understand the entire philosophy of the Bhagavad Gita, we will be highlighting these four approaches in the Bhagavad Gita. If you understand that, the entire Bhagavad Gita becomes very clear. Without that, we will be confusing. If we have our certain uh, ism in our mind, maybe it will be Dvaita, Advaita, Vishishtadvaita, with that in our mind, we try to study Bhagavad Gita. We will find that there are some confusions arising. Bhagavad Gita is a philosophy by itself, it's neither Dvaita nor Advaita nor visishtadvaita, And for that, these four approaches we have to understand first is the concept of Yajna. we will deal with it with the details first let me highlight what are the four approaches the second is in the seventh chapter where the idea is the lord is a golden thread of the necklace which constitutes the entire existence both the para and the apara prakriti there lower nature and the higher nature. We will come to the details. Just giving you that today, the idea uh, as much as possible, we will take up them one by one today itself. The first is the concept of Yagya in the third and fourth chapter. The second is the the Sutre Manigana Eva, the uh, uh, 7.7 Sloka that will indicate that. So it will come in the uh, seventh chapter and so that's the idea we will find of the bhagavad gita that where lord is saying that i am just like the golden thread through the necklace with so many beads and these beads constitutes the entire existence as the higher nature and as the uh, this para prakriti as the supreme as a higher nature and as the lower nature apara and the para prakriti so the 7th chapter it will deal with that in the 8th chapter next chapter it divinizes all our perceptions the way we are looking at the world outside the perceptions it is divinizing the entire creation through the uh, what you say that the uh, idea of six dimensions of reality it will take in, into this adhi-yagya and then the idea of uh, this what you say that um, uh there's Brahman, Adhi Daiva, Adhyatma, Karma and Adhibhuta. So these ideas will come. Many will be asked, Many I have found many asking that what actually this means. Once you understand what they really mean, uh, uh, you will find very interesting that it actually is one of the approaches of Bhagavad Gita by which, by which it is actually synthesizing the various uh, contending philosophies, the Sankhya and the Vedanta, to give an overall, a very unitary approach, a synthesizing approach to uh, understand the ultimate goal, the spiritual goal, which has been uh, proclaimed by the Bhagavad Gita, by Bhagavan Sri Krishna. So these are the three we have already spoken. The first is the concept of Yagya in the third and fourth chapter. The second is the concept of The thread of the necklace, the golden thread of the necklace, the Lord as the golden thread of the necklace, as has been spoken of in the seventh chapter. In the eighth chapter, divinizing our perceptions and our actions through the concept of the six dimensions of reality. And the most important is the last approach, which we find in the fifteenth chapter, the concept of the Purushottama Yoga. So that's even spoken of in the uh, last, the Uh, 15th chapter. So these are the uh, six approaches, uh, uh, sorry, four approaches which Bhagavad Gita will be taking. And if we understand that, first we have an overall idea of that, it will become easy for us to understand the uh, philosophy behind the Bhagavad Gita. And then it will be easy to understand the each and every sloka that what the Lord is saying, "What's the main idea behind that? What's the background of it?" That becomes palpably clear. So now, that the concept of Yagya, Let us take up that idea a bit elaborately. So in the ancient Vedic period, so yajna was a fire ritual to propitiate the Vedic gods. So you will find that the religion is evolving. That how that all the forces of nature, the human existence was highly even now dependent on the forces of nature. We even now find with all the advancement of science, a tsunami, an earthquake, a volcano can immediately just uh, disrupt our um, so-called all the advancement all our day-to-day activities. It's just a single storm we found that we were here for without electricity, without power supply for 11 days, and how all our so-called, the things which we take for granted, it just simply falls off. You find that your existence is at almost at peril. So the forces of nature, that's something which baffled the humans as from the very beginning of their existence. And they took these forces of nature as divine. They personified them. You will find that Indra is the rain, is the god of rain. Varuna is the god of winds. That's all are the Vedic gods, the early phases of the Vedas. So propitiate these forces of nature. They started doing this fire sacrifice. Very interesting. What's the idea of fire sacrifice? That this devas has to be propitiated. There has to be. We have to offer them something, so that. They, in turn, give rain in sufficient optimum quantity, it doesn't flood or neither there will be drought, nor there will be flood. The Varuna, the wind should be just something pleasant for us, but at the same time that we don't want the storm which destroys everything. So to propitiate the divine so that natural forces are in favour of us, we are going out to offer them something. Now, how to offer the Vedic gods? They're all sitting high. All the forces of nature are something which is as if coming from the above. The rain, the f- f- wind, everything. Even when the thunderstorm is there, the thunder, everything is, the so heaven is something upwards. All those Vedic uh, ideas of the divinity, of the personification of the nature. So, how to reach them? They're all on the All sitting above. So, the very very, very basic idea when we offer something in the fire, immediately the fire gets some, it just flares up and the thing is as if taken up by the fire. So, fire became the Agni Devata, the fire became the mouth of all the Devas. It is through the fire I can send the offering to all the Devas. So this is how the fire worship with the idea of yajna. But what's the basic idea? Again, the idea of interdependence, the forces of nature, something, I am dependent on them. So whether the idea of the rituals is all the fire sacrifices, that what's the, how much scientific it is and all, yes, a lot of science developed from it, the geometry, The trigonometry all came from it because the way they all used to uh, design the sacrificial altars from that the geometry came. But if we leave out that, the basic idea we take is the idea of interdependence. So we will find the concept of the Yajna is evolving in the later centuries. And this idea developed into the whole life as a vast cosmic Yajna the entire life is a yajna. So from that fire sacrifice, the idea developed that life itself is a yajna. All our actions and activities of the living beings are oblations offered into it. And how the way we offer the oblations on that depends our existence. This idea is something which is very important nowadays. The way we ignored the nature, and went with our greed for all uh, our so-called advancement in technology at the cost of the balance which was supposed to be maintained in the nature, we exploited and we find ourselves at the brink of a peril, a disaster in the form of global warming and all. So this idea which we find was something very nicely realized by them, but we have become short sighted. Our greed has made us myopic. Those uh, ancient rishis understood that it is by cooperation with the nature we can exist. The nature itself is bound, is uh, abundant. When we have to cooperate with it so that it helps us to exist, to go on with our activities, to go on with our life. Otherwise, we will be at peril. So Gita took this idea that's the life as Yajna from the Vedas and developed it into the basis of karma yoga, of selfless activity. How? We will resort to some slokas, not the exact slokas, the meaning that in the we will find the idea in the third chapter of Yajna. Very interesting. How? It is speaking something very interesting. Sometimes we don't understand. Even nowadays when drought is there, we find a lot of fire sacrifices going on because it is prescribed in the Vedas. But yajya, for fire sacrifices resulting in rain. How far it is true, I don't know. But one Yajna is already going on. The yagya even that started even before the human beings evolved. It is because of that Yajna, the entire fauna, the So-called beings who are moving on this earth, not the vegetation, the flora. It is with the flora that yajna started. How? There are two slokas, very interesting. If you take it in a limited sense, that it gives no meaning. But if you take it in this broad perspective, that the whole life is a vast cosmic Yagya, a wonderful meaning comes out of it. The entire life has evolved out of it. What's that? That all the living beings have came from food, Anna. From where the Anna came, all this, uh, all, the, all the living beings came from food, food came from rain, Parjanya. In the third chapter, this idea is there. From where the Parjanya came, the rain came, it came from Yagya. Now here we make the mistake, when the drought is there, we go for all sorts of fire sacrifices. How much truth in it, it I, am, I am not aware of it, but yes. The, what this In the sense Bhagavad Gita is using that word Yagya, we will understand, try to understand. And from that, from where that Yagya came, Yagya came from karma. From where the karma came, it came from the imperishable Brahman. So one thing first you understand, from imperishable Brahman, the entire thing came. So everything has been divinized. It's not that Purusha and Prakriti is separate, that's the first thing. Now let us try to understand what it is saying from that imperishable Brahman. This phenomenal existence even in Vedanta we say came from that non-dual Brahman. And when it came, when it was projected, how it was projected, we don't know. That's the ignorance. How the perfect became the imperfect. After all the phenomenal existence speaks of imperfection. How it happened, we don't know. That's the ignorance. But when it happened, it followed certain laws. Purusha, what you say, the Shiva, the ultimate reality, the ultimate reality as the Brahman finds expression as Shakti. All the action, the karma, that from the imperishable Brahman, the karma came. That karma speaks of Shakti. That Shakti is again not chaotic. It follows certain universal principles. It's not just like an explosion for destroying everything. The entire creation is sustained by the karma because the actions are done in such a way that instead of being chaotic, it has enabled us to sustain this creation. So what's that universal law behind all those actions? Those actions are not chaotic. Those universal laws speaks of yajna, of interdependence. How? Just say when even the not a single uh, the creeping creatures the f- fauna was there on this earth it was all vegetation the life started with plants what was going on a huge yagya was going on with the with the, you know the, when the scorching sun is there on the skin, on on the sky we think the is evaporation of the re- ocean water which creates cloud, it's only 50% of the cloud, not even 50, even less than 50% of the cloud comes from the evaporation of the water bodies. Even in the modern science, now they have already found out the deep, the huge trees, not even the plants, which we are cultivating. Suppose some, nowadays we are removing the forests for cultivating the lands. And we think, yes, after all, these are the, these are the Uh, vegetation, which is going to continue with uh, what you say the siphoning the water from the ground to the atmosphere in the form of this uh, evapotranspiration, this evaporation. So that's the idea that uh, we have. But one thing with all our cultivation, all the crops which we grow, they are not deep rooted. So the water which they evapotranspirate is very less. It is more than 50%, about 50 to 60% of the evapotranspiration that is happening is because of the forest, the huge trees. And that's caused the rain. Just think of the world when the moving creatures were yet to evolve. It was only that plants, the huge trees, the forests, And then the yajna started, that the rain will be there, the water will go deep in. Not only that, most of the, some of the water is going deep in and a considerable amount of the water is in the leaves, in the branches. And then the scorching sun is there. And again, the water is being evapotranspirated from deep within the ground, from the leaves, from the branches. And that, even the modern science say, causes more than 50% of the rain. So here you find a cycle. From the Lord, the karma came. All the actions in the universe in various ways happening. It is He who is finding expression as the Shakti, as the karma. From karma comes Yajna. This cycle. From Yajna comes rain. Here they see the huge yagya is going on. What not the your fire sacrifice? The huge yagya, the chakra is going on. We came much later. From that came rain. From rain came food. From food, the all the beings. It's not just a small part of our existence. When we, we think it's a very small part of our existence when we try to understand yagya as a fire sacrifice. Actually, our existence is dependent on that sacrifice. Now, where is our role there that if we are not driven by selfishness, if we are not driven by greed, then we understand this yagya, the entire existence is interdependent. And then we participate in it in such a way that we don't go for afforestation. We contribute something to that universal yagya chakra. In this Bhagavad Gita idea is there that we are called thieves. Who are the thieves? A person who only enjoys life but does not contribute anything to it. According to Gita, is a sinner, a sensualist, and he lives a life in vain. The slokas will come. So we are all thieves as such. When out of greed, in the, without, in the name of scientific advancement, we, have, we are not participating in the yajna. So once we know that, that the trees in the forest are the most efficient evapotranspirators out there, it is there. So the, if we compare them to the say, the, uh, compare them to the agricultural land cover trees, they can, these tr- huge trees can evaporate twice as much as the agricultural crops and about twice as much as the water body surfaces, the oceans and other things. So out of greed, if we go on air foresting, it's removing forest it has already created a big impact in the what you say in the, in the what you say the, the, uh, the or the transport of water vapor in the cross continental water transport vapor transport you have already seen a huge impact has been created so if we have just co- planted trees we would have cooperated in that yagya then the plan of the adhiyagya the lord of the sacrifices we would have cooperated with that in that Yajna. And then not from greed, not from selfishness, but as an offering to the Divine, our existence would have made the life more meaningful, not only in the spiritual sense. Abhyudaya and Nisrayasa both has to go hand in hand. Abhyudaya means social evolution and Nisrayasa means spiritual evolution. Both can go hand in hand if we really understand the plan of the divine, the plan of the Yagya Adhipati, who himself has projected himself as the Lord. He is not something like that non-dual Lord as the witness. He is a one who is actively involved in this creation. And we being a part of it have to take part in it through cooperation, through Yagya. And that's how Sankhya and the Vedanta through that first paradigm has been wonderfully integrated in the Bhagavad Gita. The other three paradigms, they're very important. We will take up this one by one in the next class, the other three paradigms. And at last we will come to the last paradigm, the idea of the purushottama And it has a huge implication in understanding our spiritual journey totally spiritual journey, which is not amputated from our life, which is a part of this life through all our responsibilities, through all our uh, uh, the positions in life where we are placed, how we can continue with our spirituality through them. That's what we find uh, again highlighted in the teachings of Ramakrishna Vivekananda. We will take up that idea in the next class before we enter into the individual texts of the Bhagavad Gita. So with this, we stop our discussion today. We'll continue uh, with this uh, idea of uh, the Bhagavad Gita again in the next class. Thank you all. Namaskar.